The Lonely Office, your playbook for navigating the messy line between work and life. Our topics are sourced from real, anonymous workplace conversations happening within Glassdoor communities. From bosses that hold you back to promotions that you don't even want, we discuss timely work-life issues so you don't have to brave the professional world alone. Guys, this story kind of plays out like a movie. This story about Dylan. Have I told you about this one? I know you were inspired by another thread from Glassdoor. Excited to hear this one. I'm fairly sure Aaron spends all of his free time on Glassdoor. (laughs) I don't know how you're getting anything else done. This one about Dylan really inspired me. Dylan is an entry-level copywriter, and he works for an online retailer. Okay, what do they sell? It's not really important. He doesn't know. (laughs) (laughs) I do know. They sell fashion t-shirts. Fast fashion t-shirts. Okay. Anyways, his manager assigns him to write copy for one of their product pages. Keep it simple, the manager says. Give me copy examples that resemble previous titles. Dylan's writing the copy, and he stops a moment, and he gets to thinking about the user journey and experimenting with different ways of writing and copy and format changes. Now, before you say anything, his career goals go beyond copywriting, and he starts making edits, and he doesn't keep it simple. He feels confident that his changes will result in increased sales. So he reaches out internally to another colleague in the marketing department and conducts a small experiment with a select group of website users. Okay. This keeps things under the radar. The experiment results come back and Dylan's instincts were spot on. Users in the experiment had higher click-through rates, leading to more sales with his non-simple version of the copy. He's excited now (laughs) at this point, and he actually wants to bring it up to his boss. Yeah. And he remembered one of his favorite self-made entrepreneurs saying something like, don't ask for permission, ask for forgiveness later. That's the mantra I live my life by. (laughs) You and me both, Matt. The boss quickly shoots the idea down, telling him, next time stick to your job Stay in your lane. Focus on writing the copy within the brand standards that we've given you. Dylan's like embarrassed by this whole thing. And the more he thought about it, the more frustrated he became. Is his boss trying to hold him down? Dylan's now motivated more than ever. So this opportunity finally presents itself during an all-hands meeting with his whole team. Oh, my gosh. (laughs) Yeah, here he comes. Manager, directors, and the CEO. Dylan's sitting in the meeting, waiting like a lion in the grass. <laughs> his hands are sweating. He knows his boss isn't going to like this. What if he gets fired? What if everyone in the room shoots down his idea? He won't be deterred, folks. Mm. And when there's a moment of silence, he slowly raises his hand from the back of the room. <gasps> Dylan's manager shoots him a glare, undeterred. <laughs> Dylan glares back. Oh my gosh. He's called upon and says, I had an interesting experiment that I ran. The CEO, his eyes widen. (laughs) There's no going back now. Here we go. We're going to leave it right at that moment. I mean, are we surprised? The drama. The king of cliffhangers. (laughs) (laughs) I really drew that one out. I think it sets us up perfectly for this conversation. Yeah. I mean, I think you were mentioning that there's a lot of theatrics applied to like these corporate office stories, but it kind of does reflect reality, doesn't it? When you're in the middle of an office drama, it feels this theatrical. I can imagine. It's going to be big news around the water cooler. Hear it. I can picture Dylan just raising his hand in the background. And that moment, right? (laughs) Right when he's about to say something. And his boss tells him with his eyes, don't you dare. Dylan's undeterred. I love that. 
Yeah, he goes for it. It's interesting because you only have Dylan's perspective. I'm trying to think. Mm. I'm trying to see it from both sides. I think we will dive into both. And I think for one reference point, cultural reference points, the uh, movie Margin Call with the young analyst in that corporate boardroom. It's exactly what I was thinking. He's about to make the CEO aware of a huge flaw in the model that's going to cause billions of dollars of lost investment. So, but we've all been there. I think, Leah, you're totally spot on. In fact, two in three employees feel their voice has been ignored in some way by their manager or employer. And a third of those would rather quit or switch mm. teams than voice their opinions or concerns. So it's a pretty sad state to find yourself in if you're willing to quit rather than yeah. speak an uncomfortable truth about the business or share an idea that you have. So it's not just Dylan. For lots of professionals, calling upon the fortitude to challenge the conclusions of people who have decades more experience than you have, it's a difficult ask. There's so many decisions we make in our daily work lives that we transact from instinct rather than careful deliberation. And so we just assume that this instinctual sense is more honed within older and more experienced professionals. But there's a few points to remember that probably will help you free yourself from this type of career defeatism. First, there will always be people in your industry with more experience, full stop, right? Yeah. And that fact will remain just about until you're ready to retire. So learning to trust your conclusions earlier in your career probably give you more time to workshop and fine tune them, trial by fire, as they say. I think the second point here was actually crystallized in a recent conversation that many of our listeners probably listened to on a podcast with Jeff Bezos, former CEO of Amazon, and Lex Friedman. Bezos makes the following point about truth-telling, roughly quotable. We humans are not truth-seeking animals. We are social animals. If you go back 10,000 years and you're in a small village, if you go along to get along, you probably survive. You can procreate. But if you're the village truth teller, you can get clubbed to death in the middle of the night. Truths often don't want to be heard. Yeah, again, pretty sad state of affairs. But Storytelling you know, be- is a dangerous profession, my friends. Yeah, you know that all too well, don't you, Aaron? That's yes, yes, I do. Particularly when you're speaking truth. But yes. <laughs> Bezos goes on to make the point that any high-performing organization has to have a culture that rewards and supports truth-telling. My own experience making decisions at the three startups that I launched where I had to deviate from the conclusions of my own investors or board members just reinforced this principle for me at the time. And I think the nice thing about truths, even in a corporate context, is that they are transparent. They're either backed by data or experience. And over time, they usually rally others around you if you just manage to survive the deluge of skeptics you'll encounter at the outset. Was the Bezos comment a jab at Elon Musk? Interesting. Because there's been a lot of conversation about how he doesn't have anyone around him anymore who says no. Mm. Anyway. That's one way to, to read that. <laughs> it might be, it's, <laughs> might be totally off base. But it is a cultural question, though, Leah, that you bring up, regardless if that's what it's about, right? Doesn't that speak to that, where if you're just surrounded by yes men or women, it's a disease to culture? I think so. And maybe we can crystallize that by there's like three scenarios or situations that professional, young professional may find themselves in. One is Dylan's, which I think we've described in the past as this zero sum manager or zero sum boss. Right. And that's the manager who's always feeling threatened by the report. He's glaring at Dylan. He's glaring at Dylan rather than realizing that the pie can be grown by nurturing your report to do the work that you do. The manager instead feels like their slice of pie is going to be taken away. As an employee for portions of my career, I've definitely felt this, but I'm curious if either of you kind of come across that. 
I have, and I, I feel like people are going to think I'm making this up because it's actually too spot on. My first job at an agency in New York, my boss had to have been in her 30s. She had, I think, been off for her wedding and honeymoon. I felt I had done a really good job while she was away. And I'd been getting all this positive reinforcement by the team that was mm -hmm. left behind. And she called me in for a meeting when she got back. And I thought I was going to be told what a great job I was doing. And instead, she was very upset with me. Mm. I had had conversations, I guess, with her boss. I don't know. I guess he had told her I was doing a good job. I was never really sure. But she was like, are you trying to take my job? And I was shocked because... Wait, wait. So, so she literally said, are you trying to take my job? She literally said, and I'm sure if I had said that to anyone else, they would have been like, oh, I'm sure she didn't mean, she didn't say that. You were 23 year old employee at the time. Yeah. I was an oh, assistant man. account executive. There was at least one person between me and her. She was at director level. And I'd been working with like the group director while she was out of, but I was like, no, of course. She was like, do you think you could do what I do? And I was like, no, I'm just, you know. Yes, I can. Over in here. Fact. No, I was shocked. It was really <laughs> yeah. strange. That's discouraging. My 23-year-old self, if I were told that, I would just be flabbergasted. Definitely must have done things that set her off. And I don't think I was self-aware enough at the time. But was it like a red flag or something that you did? Or are you just doing your job? I think I was just doing my job. I think this is more prevalent than we can even understand how many people we work with or report to where just by doing your job, you're feeling like you're creating a threatening environment. Right. It puts you in a situation where you kind of don't do your job as well as you can do. And then what you, what you realize is like, what are we doing here? What is this dance? This isn't fun. Yeah. Like, shouldn't we just be doing our jobs? I've experienced this right from the interview. Oh, really? You mean you've discovered indicators that you might find yourself at a in a company or reporting to a manager, a boss that is trying to impede your upward progress. I've had one situation where it was like, yeah, either hiring you is going to be the best decision of my life or the worst mistake I've ever made. What? And I remember being like, that's the strangest thing. I'm like so hungry. Yeah. I'm 22. I, I just want to be part of the company. It's like $28,000 in Ohio. And when I reflected back on it, it wasn't just sour grapes. Like I didn't get a job. When I looked at it and looked at that person, my skill set and their skill set, I'm like, oh, right. a lot of times candidates won't even get the job because they might appear threatening because the manager, if it's that zero sum game and they're part of that hiring process, or at least there to help make a recommendation to HR, they can see from the very get if someone has that spark or that yeah. hunger, they may not like that. That's why a lot of people are in those scenarios where they're always like, how come that really lame person who is just mediocre got the job because they're easily you can control right. them. They're not a right. threat. I really think a lot of the mediocrity we see, not only from the interview, but from what Dylan is talking about, Leah, what you're talking about, I think it actually has a lot to do with what we're hitting on here, which is that fear of scarcity, fear of being threatened, fear of looking bad, oftentimes can create a culture of suppression where you can't really do the job you're supposed to do. Mm. You know what, Aaron, you're making me realize that this was, it was a digital, we started saying digital at that point, but it was like a digital client. By the way, in case you're wondering, there's a dance accompanied with that statement that like, yeah, I'm, I'm like doing all hand camera. movements, but yeah, we were doing like <laughs> websites and banners that had video in them. But I think experience was a little bit less important as online or digital fluency. So even though I was right out of college, I knew an unimpressive amount probably to any teenager now. But anyway, about the internet and about 
I built a website before, but I wonder if maybe that was something that she found threatening. But isn't that the circle of life? Not to go off topic, but my five-year-old daughter, I caught her recently. She can't type and she was asking a question to Google by tapping the microphone icon in the URL bar, speaking to the she iPad and then wow. pressing enter. It's futile, Leah. Like as we age, this young generation, they're yeah. just going to take over. Isn't that just the circle of life? It is. Or you can learn from it too. Like if you instead of feeling threatened, it could be like, hey, how can I leverage that ability? Teach me that. Well, yeah, because sometimes you're just going there to be wrong. I remember thinking iPads are never going to take off because they don't have flash. I mean, <laughs> no one's going to want to access the internet without being able to see flash websites. Flash. You, I know you're a creative agency professional. <laughs> if you're still talking referencing Flash. Oh, that was the bane of my existence on the software development side. Really fascinating. I mean, I get frustrated when and if I run into managers that have this mentality. We're taught the first thing, the first job of a founder CEO is to hire so that you make yourself obsolete. That's the rule. And it's actually one of the most satisfying milestones you can reach as a founder when you've literally hired yourself out of a job within your own company. This is not like some a gesture of selflessness coming from me or another founder. It's really the best for the business. And it grows it considerably faster if you manage to do that. So I'm always puzzled when I run into this because I tend to believe that the pie can grow. And if you can take these tasks that you're doing currently and find a report who can do them just as well, if not better, you free yourself up for more strategic initiatives or creativity or whatever it is to add to the business in the bottom line. That's right. This blockading, I just don't understand it, honestly. That's why in my head initially, as Aaron was telling the story, I'm like, is there something else at play? Have they tried this before and it didn't work? And for whatever reason, his boss is just not giving him the full picture. I'm trying to rationalize the boss's perspective because I find it so hard to understand. But his words were brand guidelines. So, okay, let's give the manager the benefit of the doubt and Maybe these brand guidelines are very strict. And maybe, in fact, Dylan, as a report, transgressed those brand boundaries. But the experiment was small. It was not a reckless experiment that was right. going to endanger thousands of dollars of revenue. And ultimately, there was learnings behind it. I just feel there was probably better yeah. ways that his manager could have communicated oh, back than just stay in your lane. And you would think he'd be appreciative that he didn't just have an idea, but he kind of put a framework behind it. He actually tried yeah. it out. Unless that's opening them up to some sort of legal liability that we don't understand. I'm making things up now. You've <laughs> got to give us more here, Aaron. We need more context. <laughs> we need more context. But I think most people don't have that context. Most employees, most people like Dylan are in that situation. And if you're listening right now, you know, and you're going through scenarios too, and you're going, why is my boss like this? Why is my yeah. manager like this? And you start going, is it something I said? Did I not make a right impression? Am I crossing boundaries? Did I do something that... And most people don't want to make their managers look bad. Most human beings aren't in the job or don't have the desire to put their managers out of business or they want to please. They want to get affirmation. And I think, Matt, you just said like, hey, I think the pie, we can grow the pie. We can share in this. It's got to start from the top, right? Meaning the manager has to know that he or she shouldn't be afraid if they have someone like yeah. Dylan or like Leah at 23 
or Matt, a young whippersnapper coming in there with big ideas <laughs> at a young age, we shouldn't be fearful of that. We should share in the pie. Whippersnapper. whippersnapper. I, I got to pick that one up. I, I appreciate it. Yeah, it's kind of like the anecdote that we shared at the top with Bezos. People don't want to be clubbed to death. We're more social animals than we are, you know, truth-seeking animals. There's a lot that you can do from a culture standpoint, right? And if you do find yourself in the, the operator's chair or kind of the executive ranks within a company, there's a lot you can do so that you don't reward managers who knowledge hoard and impede the progress of the reports. One just quick anecdote that I've had, again, from the operator's chair, the initial engineers, in my case, I may use to build a particular business or product. Invariably, as the business grows, you hire more developers. And I've heard this with other founders, tech founders. Occasionally, those early engineers find themselves in a vulnerable position where they no longer own the code base. They don't necessarily want to knowledge share. And so their code may go uncommented. And you have new engineers coming and like trying to make sense of these tens of thousands of lines of code. And the early engineers don't want to do anything to help bring them in, into the fold. That's really frustrating. Obviously, if you've had open and honest conversations with those early team members or employees and reassured them that if anything, you have a higher perch or a more strategic perch or a more creative perch where you can architect and design and build, that's less of an issue. But it's human instinct. I've run into this. And it's funny because I've run into this in multiple companies. So it's definitely a motif that repeats itself. I mean, I just started rewatching Silicon Valley. <laughs> and it's happening on the show. Oh, really? Okay. You know, show's from 2014. I can't believe how old it is. I think for every Dylan, there's probably a hundred people who do the opposite of what Dylan does. What made Dylan's story interesting and fun to tell is that he did become undeterred. He was confident. He yeah. did have the sense that he had something to offer, even in the face of a manager who was like, don't you raise your freaking hand. But the other underbelly of reality is that the majority of people won't raise their hands. Right. And I would say yeah. that a lot of the reason why is they might have imposter syndrome. Right. Haven't we all been there where we're like, I'm not sure if I'm qualified to say this. Where's that line? I think that's the second scenario. So maybe you find yourself in a position at work where you actually have a manager or a boss that is, if not welcoming, but open to being challenged or presented new ideas or new conclusions. But you just lack some of that self-confidence, right? Back to what we spoke at the top, you read into the decades of experience that he or she may have and feel their instincts are just stronger. The first thing I think to make note of is in this case, this was kind of a, a data-driven conclusion. And that's the point of speaking truth, where you have some data or an anecdote to back it up, and that can help compensate for the lack of self-confidence. But in general, I think so much of the young corporate workforce is ensnared by this thinking that overestimates the competency of organizations. And I'm not here to just to dis <laughs> on or disclaim all companies, but I do think there's an overestimation about their competency that occurs. We all build on the shoulders of those that came before us, but there are some really foundational assumptions that are made, particularly in the beginning of the build, that may no longer apply later with all the changing norms that happen. And this is something, again, I've also experienced where a product that I may have worked on over the course of five, seven years there was a lot of assumptions we made early on in terms of the design of features or even the way we implemented something that years later, those are just no longer true. They no longer hold valid. And I would want my reports or my employees to step up and say, hey, by the way, maybe this doesn't make sense anymore versus just 
take it for fact that, hey, you know what? The institutions that we have, they're solid. Let's not question them or challenge them at all for the purposes of making them better. I think there's just an overestimation that's prevalent with some of that younger workforce. I fell into it for years, Leah, years, always thinking that the company knew what was going on. They must have it figured out. Yeah. They got it all figured out. I knew it wasn't perfect, but yes, the overestimation, Matt, that is so spot on because I never lacked in confidence, but I was hesitant about certain things because I thought, well, they already got this figured out or who am I to mm. say this? And then the more you start working with companies, big and small, especially from the consultant side, you're like, they're just trying to solve a problem. They don't got a lot of the shit figured out. It's groundbreaking once you have that moment. Not that it's all shit. It's just human, right? That there are just people trying to solve problems and it's not perfect. Yeah. My second job that I had, well, second real, real big girl pants job, I had kind of a polar opposite boss. He was this sort of terrifying Irish man with a very dry sense <laughs> of humor, but not warm and fuzzy. But I, at some point was having a conversation with him because I felt like I wasn't doing a great job. And he said something along the lines of, I hired you for a reason. You mm. had a wonderful interview. You're really bright. We want to hear your opinion. I was kind of shocked. I was like, what? Mm, me? <laughs> you think I'm good at things? Like you care what I have to say? Yeah. And that's not always the case. Well, and people like Dylan's boss are obviously going to emphasize that to you. Like, <laughs> hey, I've been doing this for 20 years. Why don't you just listen to me and do what I asked you to and stop fooling around? You almost have to wonder whether imposter syndrome is like a baby boomer generation spawn pseudo illness they put out to reinforce their mm. hierarchy and their authority in the workplace. It's a conspiracy there. That's what we do here on The Lonely Office. We peddle in conspiracies. <laughs> oh my gosh. But in a serious note, I've read a lot about how the antidote to imposter syndrome, which again is like a social media driven syndrome, I feel. and. I've read a lot about how the antidote to imposter syndrome is fake it until you make it. And I think it's really easy yeah. to fall for tropes like this when you're just entering the workforce. The advice I'd give my younger self would be to take bigger risks earlier in your career and don't be afraid to expose yourself to what you don't know and to ask questions at every turn. Because the truth is expectations of others are lowest when you're just starting off. This concept of being bolder when younger. Mm. There's really no reason to feel like an imposter when you're particularly early in your workforce, because expectations are lowest. You have more permission to learn and to make mistakes. So be bold. So Matt, before we move on, your team, Dylan, do you think what he ended up doing by raising his hand and speaking up to the CEO saying, hey, check this out, do you think that was a good Absolutely. move by Dylan? Or are you a little bit empathetic to the manager as well? Not one ounce of me is empathetic to the manager in fact, if I found myself okay. in that position and I had recognized or I'd been informed with some evidence to back it up that this manager was essentially doing this, I'd, I'd can that manager. I'm Team Dylan all the way. You mentioned the engineers, Matt, earlier in the conversation. Like, How do you practically create that environment so that someone like a Dylan can come to you and not feel afraid? I mean, I've had very conservative clients in the past, I won't name them, who never want to do certain things. And we would still annually propose those radical, we should try to do this on Twitter or whatever it might be, because you never know when all of a sudden they're going to be comfortable for something. Even if they had these brand guidelines, it's worth a try if it looks like it's increasing sales. I don't mean to push on this. I think it's important though, to give a scenario because there's a lot of Dylans who are talking with their managers, or maybe there are people who are managers, clearly, who don't want to come off the person that came off in this story. 
what do you do if Dylan came to you and said, hey, I did this little experiment. Sorry, you didn't know about it. it was kind of in the moment, but I wanted to show you that I did this thing and I noticed this outcome. How would you react to that? What he should have done is help him put together a presentation that was appropriate for CEO facing or build out the experiment so that we had more data to then bring it to senior leadership to make a wider change. I agree. And and you could even make the case to the report there that the winning formula here isn't for you to kind of cold pitch this in a all hands meeting. The winning formula is to do exactly what Leah said is, yeah, <laughs> let's get in a meeting with the CEO and I'll be beside you and you pitch it. Stepping back for a second from that, the first thing I would have done is said, what did I do wrong as a manager to create an unsafe environment mm. where you didn't feel comfortable coming and pitching this to me? Yeah, that's a great point. But I don't think Dylan's manager <laughs> has that perspective. Even a meeting like that where you're bringing it to senior leadership, the manager at the end of the day is going to get some level of credit for the idea and the improvement, even if it wasn't their idea. Right. You can let your junior employee pitch a great idea. You're still going to get credit for it because you're managing the person. Totally. A hundred percent. The manager gets credit as well, even in a scenario where the young analyst is pitching and making it clear that this was their idea. When I was in the operator's chair, the CEO's chair, I definitely gave points to the manager for nurturing the report to do that. But Leah, people are listening to you and Matt going like, why don't I have a manager like right. this? Because if it was that easy, why, why isn't, isn't it, it more, more prevalent? prevalent? For me, this is a deeper undercurrent of culture that makes all of this possible. Toxic company culture. Right. Or if you want to be more specific, kind of Bezos hit on this when he said we're social animals more than we're truth-seeking animals, is that there are too many institutions where social dynamics are kind of the rules of the game or the rules that apply to the workforce. And I'm kind of torn because the company builder in me likes that state of affairs. As long as that's the case, it's easier for an entrepreneur to build a product or a service, differentiate it from these other companies because they're so mired with this issue and pilfer talent and grow your own company. So that part of me is like, yeah, maybe it's not a bad thing if the company's ran this way. It's also kind of sucks if you're a corporate employee and you're working in this. And I've seen it having been on the inside and the outside. But yeah, like there's really no other way than it's top down, right? The CEO and the executive brass has to roll that type of thinking out top down. And they do that by reinforcing it in their own meetings with their own reports in all hands meetings. And the other thing I just wanted to say is I think it's really in vogue and it's very common to see this type of ethical truth telling these days where there's employees who feel resonance with the mission or they may not feel resonance and they'll go and tackle that aspect, the ethical dilemma or the ethical part of the mission statement for the company. The problem is that's not sufficient and it's important, no doubt, for employee morale and conviction. But applying this truth-telling principle to also making significant product and business decisions is really where it should all start. You don't get to have a voice in the ethical arena if you have no business to speak up to start. Too many companies, I feel, window shop this type of, let's call it social justice or equity credentials to attract talent. And we hear this from Gen Z all the time on networks like Glassdoor. But these same companies don't necessarily have a culture that equitably proportioned attention to voices that may not be based on rank. And they don't open up opportunities for uncomfortable business truths. So there's almost a misprioritization, I feel sometimes this day of age, where there's so much focus on the ethical truth telling was like, well, look, let's go back to the basics. And can I share my opinion that's based on solid anecdotes or experience or data? 
or can I not? Because the company is just operating as a social playground. Well, and when employees don't feel like they're being heard within the company, and then to your point, a president or CEO stands up and is talking about social equity or social justice, but it doesn't ring true. It doesn't resonate Mm. the same way when you're like, ah, you guys don't care what any of us have to say. It's hollow. You're on the inside and you see, well, that's not the way we operate this company with our business or product decision-making. And so when you were talking about ethical truth-telling that is not sufficient, we're talking more from the operators or the business side of things, right? It's very common these days, I feel, for the employee to be almost goaded by culture and social media to focus on that aspect of these companies. And that's important. I'm not here to argue against that. By all means, it's important and it reinforces employee conviction morale. But it's not sufficient. Kind of a callback to one of the stories in the previous episodes about, if you remember, where I, at the for-profit school, had my rallying cry and was drug out by security. (laughs) If you are in that situation where you're having to do that, that speaks to the culture to begin with, right? That's just you being unhinged. (laughs) (laughs) Wait, 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 me? (laughs) Employees only get unhinged when the environment is so corrupt Like someone has to stand up and say, I'm not going to take this anymore. I mostly agree with you, but some of them come in unhinged. As we do talk about this, maybe some pragmatic tips that a new hire, or if you're a candidate looking at a company, what are tips or indicators that this is a company that doesn't knowledge hoard or that, you know, rewards being challenged? And as I think about it, there are two that come to mind. One is if you're in a meeting with executive brass or C-suite, it's very telling who else speaks up in that meeting and who doesn't. So if it's just like a one-sided conversation, for the most part, with almost like a cherry-picked list of questions answered by the executive suite, then that's not a great indicator. The other kind of simple cheat I found is, look at the Google Drive of the organization. So if you find that, for the most part, all documents are public and equally shared, both within intra and inter across departments of companies, that's a good indicator that there's no knowledge hoarding happening because the symptoms for something like a bad culture usually start, in my experience, with knowledge hoarding, where somebody works themselves to a management position and all of a sudden puts up the wall of progress for those below him or her. And that's usually entails some level of knowledge restriction and hoarding and that could be take the form of PowerPoint documents that are created. I'm not going to make them publicly shared to others, assuming that this is not confidential information. It's just it would benefit the organization. That's a really good tip. I think you've also made me realize, Matt, maybe I'm not good at figuring that out before I start working at a company or what I start. I feel like <laughs> I've occasionally fallen into situations where the culture isn't as great and oftentimes not even realized. until I had shared too much of my opinion and it was too late. Though I still hung up on your advice of fake it till you make it. (laughs) No, I mean, it is something that I did a lot early in my career, just pretending to be confident. But remember my dad's advice when I was going into interviews was, have you ever seen Animal House? Oh, yeah. yeah. At the beginning of the movie, he's walking around the frat party and he's just going like, Eric Stratton, Rush Chairman, damn glad to meet you. And my dad is like, just go in with that in your head. Like, I'm Leia. Damn glad to meet you. Here for this role. And then just sort of go in with that level of confidence, at least from an interview perspective. And I don't know, it worked. I've gotten jobs. Yeah, but it's almost like faking it there is a fill-in for confidence, coming with self-confidence. And I think it's sending the wrong message, maybe for particularly the younger 
graduate out of college. Get yourself in trouble by trying to do things that you don't. Well, have it's that. not yeah, thinking, yeah, yeah. it's learning. If you were to use the word learning, that would reinforce that questions are okay. I've always had issues with young workers feeling comfortable with questions. I've always made it a point culturally to reinforce that, but it's just something, the nature yeah. of corporate institutions and not being open to even answering questions, no matter you know, how trivial they might sound. The fake it till you make it kind of thing, the way I read it has been, if you're a young employee or you're starting somewhere, even just getting acclimated to systems, protocol, direct reports, and who do you talk all that stuff, there's a knowledge gap just generally when you start, right? When there isn't the knowledge available, people shut down and they are afraid mm. to ask questions just naturally because they feel like they need the information first to be able to even ask the question. I've had that where he was like, I'm just paralyzed. I don't want to do the wrong thing. Dylan talks about that. Ask permission later. Fake it to make it to me is like, just take action and then either learn from it or ask how to do it better next right. time. I think that's maybe a way out of imposter syndrome. It's a rally cry for you. I that's definitely right. take it from a child psychology standpoint where children who look older or are taller, they should be for their age. Mm -hmm. The public, adults when interacting with them, always assume they know, know more or should know more than they know. And so those children in particular mm. get really accustomed to just nodding their head because the adults' expectations that you should know this, but in fact, they're just five years old. My daughter happens to be mm. one of these. She's a very tall five-year-old and people assume she's eight sometimes mm. and she's not and she just like nods her head like yeah i understand like no it's okay you know you don't understand <laughs> ask the question right fascinating i guess one quick thing before we sign off is for dylan let's play out the scenario that the ceo really likes the idea but then he has to work with this manager what advice would you have for someone who's in that situation where they have to work in this weird environment? What do you do to navigate that? Find allies outside of your boss. Thinking back to my first job, and it was extremely uncomfortable working with my boss. I mean, I stuck it out. Who knows why? I don't because I was too young to be involved in any sort of real conversations or decision making at the time. But she was actually let go <laughs> a couple months later. In Dylan's case, his boss may have been concerned, oh, are you trying to take my job? Now that he stood up in the all hands and shared this with senior leadership and put his neck out. It's almost as if like, I actually am. Like now he may be taking his job, which is the, that's, back. the that's the ironic part. <laughs> like, and he obviously has allies within the company because he worked with someone to Marketing. run this yeah. test and he felt confident right. enough to stand up or raise his hand in an all hands meeting and put his neck out. Dylan's going to get a pay bump. Ah, doubtful. No one ever gets pay bump. Sorry. The only thing I'll <laughs> add to that is just keep in mind your career isn't that one company alone. Not to say that, hey, like, let's just take a mm. dump on every company you work for. Like, I'm there just for a short stint. No, but you have a narrative or a story you're building at that company. And if the narrative is I developed a campaign that grew revenue by X percent and got signed up by CEO, even if you do get canned by that manager, you can take that story to the next company. Hey, you made it. Thanks for tuning into The Lonely Office. If you like what you heard, follow us on all major podcast platforms so you don't miss an episode. And make sure and tap five stars and leave a review. I know everyone says it, but it actually helps others like you discover the show. Remember, the topics you hear us talk about on the show are sourced from Glassdoor communities, where professionals are having candid conversations about their careers anonymously with others in their industry. To be part of that conversation, 
download the Glassdoor app. And when you're in the app, make sure and join the Lonely Office Bowl. That's where we are. When you're there, you can suggest a topic idea or an episode idea, or you can make it more formal and email us at thelonelyoffice at glassdoor.com. We'll catch you next time. Thank you.